0: This is Bless You Boys Podcast 132, recorded October 10th, 2014. Tiger's Postmortem with Matthew B. Mowry of the Oakland Press. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Welcome to the Bless You Boys podcast, where the editorial staff of blessyouboys.com, SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog, talks about the past week of Detroit Tigers baseball and whatever else happens to be on our minds when it comes to the major leagues. Uh, well, there's it's going to be a little different podcast because, uh, well, the season's over. <laughs> uh, got, got earlier than some expected, even though a few of us on the site did predict a Tigers loss in the ALCS, including yours truly, but uh, we, we're going to do a post-mortem. Uh, and uh, we have a special guest to do that with. But before we get to all that, let's get the introductions out of the way. Uh, first off, I am Al Beaton, co-managing editor of BlessYouBoys.com. Uh, you know me, pre- uh, and you, you know you know me pretty much as I try to be the voice of reason on this podcast. Joining me every week is the man I like to call the well. He's the king of West Michigan. He uh, rails against uh, certain softball issues, and of course, he's an acolyte of Earl Weaver. And he, well. Uh, he, he, well, let me put it this way: uh, we're both glad the season's over in a way. We'll talk about all that in a little bit. But, Hook Slide, welcome to the show. It's been
1: uh, a pretty crappy <laughs> couple weeks, hasn't it? Uh, uh, sorry, you can hear it in the tone of our voices yeah. even now. It's a very, a very, uh, uh what's the word? A, f- a funeral-like quality mm-hmm. to this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> As 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 we uh, kind of do the uh, as you call it the post mortem, kind yes. of review the uh, dead body of the Tiger season. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and <laughs> I mean, is, we actually have good. a coroner with us, so to speak. Yes, so, yeah, yeah, nice if we you want to
0: put it that way.
1: <laughs> yeah, we would uh, we would like to welcome to the show our, our coroner extraordinaire. Uh, I, I really do apologize for the uh, the. Um, set up, Matthew, because I think we all had hoped that this would have been a a kind of a preview for the ALCS going forward, but uh, uh, we have with us on the show today a beat writer for the Tigers, a writer for the Oakland Press. Um, You probably know him from his activities on Twitter as well as with the Oakland Press, but uh, welcome, Matthew Mowry, to the show.
2: Guys, thanks for having me. Uh, I hope this is uh, just a coincidence, and if we do this again, there won't be anybody else dying, but uh, glad to be here. Yeah. You you have my word that
1: if the Tigers uh, manage to pull off a World Series win next year, you will be our first guest after that. So we can kind of make up for what happened this year. <laughs> so, I will hold you to that. <laughs> Absolutely. No, the, the the backstory there is that we had originally lined up, Matthew, for this uh, this weekend anyway, hoping, assuming, expecting that uh, we'd be going into the uh, – championship series and that we'd have all sorts of you know predictive things to talk about and uh i mean the possibility was always there that we'd be doing a post-mortem but that wasn't the expectation but here we are anyway so uh let's stop talking about baseball for just a second matthew i wanted to go into um a little bit about your experience as a beat writer. of course we had uh, uh, M Live's Chris Iat on the show recently. We also had uh, Jason Beck from MLB on the show. And you know the funny thing is, is I don't think either of those guys really answered the question which is which is what is a day in the life of a beat writer? And, and just kind of tell us, I mean, what is, what's the average work day look like? I mean, I, I assume you're up at like the crack of dawn you know, you're you're immediately reading the newspaper headlines, looking for story ideas. You're out to the ballpark by noon. You're you're there till three in the morning. You survive on three hours of sleep a night. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but what's 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 it like to be the beat writer?
2: That's about it in a nutshell. Well, I mean, it it is it depends entirely on the day. Some days there's really nothing going on, and then there are other days where you know news breaks before you ever head to the ballpark. So you spend you know two hours and you try to grab a sandwich while you're you know writing up a you know, a quick and dirty story to put up on the web, you know, at noon, and then you head down to the ballpark, and usually, generally speaking, we get there, you know, three and a half, four hours before game time. For those guys, it's probably a little bit different since they do travel with the team in the regular season. If you're in, you know, Minneapolis or Seattle or wherever they happen to be, especially if you're dealing with a time change, you know, sometimes they may get to the park more than three and a half hours before game time. But generally speaking, that's kind of when you're when we arrive, just because that's, you know, that's a lot of times that's when the lineup gets up. So if you have to do a lineup post, you're there, you know, when the lineup is posted. And also that's generally speaking when, when the clubhouse opens for, you know, writers to go in. Um, and that's something that's, you know, negotiated by the BBWA so we're there you know and sometimes you go in the locker room and you stand around and you just stare at the players and they stare back at you I and mean, if you don't have anything specific to do that day it's not necessarily always the most productive time spent but, but generally you know half an hour after the clubhouse opens that's where you get to speak to the manager you know in years past it was it was pretty much on a schedule with Jim Leland this year with with Austin it's been a little bit more negotiable so sometimes it's you know, 15 minutes after you get in. Sometimes it's 45 minutes after you get in. Sometimes you wanted to speak in the dugout because he was about to throw BP. You know, so it's a little more, a little more negotiable this year as far as what the time frame is. And then usually you're, you know, jamming out a story before the game. If if there's something newsworthy in that pregame, a lot of times what will happen is the pregame session with the manager is a little more relaxed. It's a little more. Well, with Jim a lot of times it was off the record a lot of times it was way off the record and there were times where it was way 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 off the record <laughs> um and Brad was a little more you know by the best you're know, close to the best kind of thing I don't know that I ever heard him go off the record this year um but a lot of times that's when you get the more candid responses or you can go down a tangent you know one of the ones that uh, Tom Gage from the Detroit News brought up and it was one that I hadn't even thought about it until it was brought up. And, and then once, once it became, you know, something that, that Austin had talked about, you know, he, he got off this to talk about the home run he hit in the game that ended up being, you know, very newsworthy recently because it was previously the, the record for the longest playoff game at 18 innings. But he hit the home run for the Houston Astros in the ninth inning to send it to uh, extra innings against the Braves. And, and it was one where he talked about, you know, kind of, not really celebrating in his head because he was already concentrating on the hitters they were going to have to face in the, in the uh, top of the 11th. And, and it was very apropos to, you know, how he kind of dealt with with games. He got over wins very quickly. He got over losses very quickly and went on to the next pass. So those kind of things you can get in the pregame. And in the postgame, it's a little more hurried because a lot of people are on deadline and a lot of people are... You know, you're just trying to get the perfunctory. I have to get this answer to this one question. Or I have to get the answer to this one question before I go. A lot of times, the pregame is where you can kind of explore a little longer and you know go down, go down a couple more rabbit holes if if you're if you're searching for a for a longer answer. Yeah, they are long days. They're usually generally 13 hour days. Cause, you know, once once the ball players wrap up their day once they go home, we're usually sitting around with the press box for another two hours of made me laugh last year when we were uh, – a couple days before the trade deadline, one of the PR people walked up to a couple of us and said, how long are you guys usually here after the game? And it was a very leading question, and we just kind of looked at him funny and went, for a while, why? You huh, might right want to stick around. Yeah, and that was the day that they ended up trading for Iglesias. So we ended up being there that day until – almost 5, you know, banging out a couple more stories because the the trade itself didn't break until 12.30 or 1, I believe, if I remember correctly. And then we got Dombrowski, and then, you know, it was like the cycle started all over again at, at 1 in the morning. So it, it's, um, there are days like that where it's, you know, just, just hectic from, from stem to stern. And there are other days where, you know, you get your work done and you go home and it's not really all that much different from a different job.
1: So, I mean, let, let's just stay on this topic for for a few minutes here, um, because it, you know it, it seems at the outset that that might be the dream job. You know, you, I, I assume that, that uh, you were a baseball fan prior to becoming a journalist. Is that okay? So, you know, for, for speaking for, you know, as, as a fan from that perspective, you know, I'm saying, wouldn't it be awesome to just you know, that, that's my job. I get to be at the ballpark you know, most of the games, at least, I know you're not know, there are 162 games out of the year, but you know, I get to watch baseball for free and get to talk to the players up close and so forth. But I would imagine that after a while that, you know, that, that uh, polish begins to wear down a little bit and it begins to feel more like a job. So tell us, I mean, like, what are some of the pros and the cons? How do you keep this from being a job? How do you keep the magic?
2: Well, I think part of it that goes in. one of the factors that goes into that is that you almost have to keep it as a job and i trust me i've covered a billion other things before i started covering baseball full time you know i've covered high school everything and and i think it was a high school i don't remember if it was boys or girls basketball parents years ago probably 10 to 12 years ago said how can you not excited when you know his her her son their daughter's team won a game and i said ma'am I watch somebody win and somebody lose every night. You almost have to Mm. take that perspective no matter what. You know, and it kind of gets ingrained in you. And and a lot of times you'll hear sports writers say, I don't root for the team, I root for the story, or I root for done. You know, they just kind of want, want the game to wrap up and whether it's win or lose. So you don't get emotionally invested in that. And since you're not emotionally invested, that kind of helps you ride that up and down for us it was up and down you know as, as sports writers it was up and down this year because there were, you know there were periods of drama and there were periods of you know silly drama sometimes and, and then there were periods of you know where the team was going pretty well and nothing was going on but we don't necessarily ride the rapids the way you know a fan does and in, in a lot of cases we ride it a little bit more like the team tries to or at least like they try to portray that they do where you know they're a little more even keeled, and we've got to kind of be the same way too. I mean, if we if we come across as you know, this this affects me because this loss, you know, hurt me to my core. That's really, not, I mean, you, you gotta you gotta pull yourself out of that and and actually do your job, and you know, so you end up not really necessarily having those same kind of you know feelings about the actual game itself. But you're right, at its very essence, yes, I'm sitting at a ballpark with a very very exceptional view of the field. I get to do it for free every day. I don't have to buy season tickets. and I get to watch, you know, what's an incredible game. Sometimes it gets old. Sometimes, you know, you get in a funk where there were whole seasons, you know, a couple of seasons ago. 2012 was not exactly an enjoyable season to cover the Tigers simply because they were trailing all year long almost to the White Sox. You know, they had that stand mm, early right. in the year where they couldn't win back-to-back games to save their lives. And every time anybody asked a question about it, Jim Leland bit their head off and you know we were right down to the end of the season a little bit like this year even where you know there are questions about okay well if they don't make the playoffs did Jim Leland survive this so he was getting testier and testier each and you know every game and that was the first season for Prince here and he was testier and testier and you now he never started out as an overly gushy relationship between Prince and and us and but it was you can only ask the question and get if baseball is an answer so many times before you just go okay. Well, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna go out. I'm not gonna try to get water out of that well anymore. When you end up having a season where a guy like Jeff Baker, who is here for three weeks, be almost the team spokesperson that tells you kind of how tight that team was and how kind of, uh, it it was just. It wasn't a fun team to be around. There was a lot of negativity, it seemed like. There was a lot of bitterness. And if you recall, also, was the, you know, the season that one of their primary leaders, Victor Martinez, wasn't there. He stopped in a couple of times, and the couple of times that he did stop in, seemed like he lifted everybody's spirits up. But the rest of the time, it was not necessarily a joyful team to be around. So there, there are times like that where it can get all a little tedious as far as, you know, there aren't a whole lot of guys on, on the team that you just want to walk up to and strike up. Strike up a conversation about you know how, how's your how are your kids doing or you know how how was your vacation over the you know the All Star break or, or whatever it is. There are a couple of guys on the team, but even then they get kind of they get kind of weary of being the spokespeople. So to speak, and and so it just it can it can be a grind. It can be ones where you know I think the players will admit sometimes that they're like a family and they annoy each other by the end of the season. It can do that same way with us. We can get annoyed by them, and they can get. Easily annoyed by us within the first couple of months. So that part of it, yeah. When when you look at 162 games plus you know spring training plus plus you know theoretically every year a pretty deep one in the playoffs, it can get to be you know a little a little old by the end of the season.
1: And and so once you're into the uh, the playoffs and that's all you know said and done, it's over with. Uh, I, I assume you just shut down for the off season, right? You don't you don't work until the spring.
2: <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a lot of times. That's the way it used to be in the old days, especially if somebody you know does indeed cover 162 games. Like like I said, I only cover you know unless it's in the playoffs. I only cover in person the the home games, and then I'll be you know watching on TV and you know kind of trying to assess what's going on that way. But during the off season, a lot of times you know it used to be when we would, when we would do all of our pagination for the sports section at the Oakland Press. I would do a lot of that in the winter. And then I, I cover some high school sports. I, I cover high school girls basketball, which, as I told somebody during the season, it's a little weird going from crowds of 40,000 to crowds of 40 in, in a in a real hurry. But uh, but the nice thing sometimes about that is that you go to a high school girls basketball game or boys or you know football or whatever it is, and and those kids enjoy the fact that you're there. They they like to see you there, and they you know you get kind of a a rapport with some of them that, that maybe you don't even have with some of the professionals who kind of have this, you know, uh, start to put it in words, but they they almost expect that people are going to be there watching them, and you don't necessarily get that from high school kids. So yeah, a lot of time that for me is uh, is spent doing things like that, doing doing other tasks mm-hmm. for the newspaper during the off season.
0: All right, with the uh, kind of the basis of your job out of the way, let's talk about the Tigers, or at least as least <laughs> as depressing of a topic that might be. Uh, obviously, they were bounced out of the playoffs earlier than ever this year. Uh, I, I guess the first start is, first question, was this a surprise to you? Because even with their struggles this year, I still think the vast majority of the fan base, and for that matter the media, thought this team was going to at least make it to the ALCS.
2: Yeah, I think I think first of all they had the reputation. They'd been to the ALCS three three years running, and you know obviously they everybody thought that they had a very battle tested team, and they did. Everybody thought you know this is a team that got pushed right to the end of the season. and theoretically those kind of teams a lot of times you know like like a wild card team if you get pushed right to the end of the season you're still playing your best baseball, and you know teams that clinch it early don't necessarily have that advantage. And I think everybody looked at the makeup of this team, and it still is. I mean, you look at the blueprint for this team, and minus obviously those three guys that got hurt in spring training that they had to play the entire season without, this still was a team that had a World Series caliber roster or an ALCS caliber roster. I mean, it has one of the best rotations in baseball on paper. It has one of the lineups, best lineups in baseball on paper but when those things don't perform up to their paper reputations that that's what you get you get you get a series like this where you know you're, you're bounced out early because i think every, everybody looked at the tigers and they said okay well they've got a, a rotation set up to win in the playoffs you've got you know theoretically you can trot out your three former side Young winners and you know maybe Porcello or maybe somebody on short rest if you want, and you can put that up against anybody. And that's the same you know theory they were using for the Oakland A's after they picked up Smart and Lester, that they thought that was going to be the battle. And that's always been the formula, starting 15 wins in the playoffs. Well, what ended up happening was the closer we got to the end of the season, theoretically, it could have been those three former Cy Young winners going on game 162, game 163, and the wild card game, if necessary, in order. Well, it ended up being won game 162 with David Price on the mound. So it pushed those guys back. But you still ran out those three former Cy Young winners, and they got beat with those guys on the mound. And those guys, it wasn't like they were pitching eight innings of one-hit baseball. I mean, they were okay, but they weren't up to necessarily that reputation. And, and yes, obviously – both are in the huge factor mm-hmm. in the way the season went and the way the postseason went and how quickly it went. But that was a part of it too. Those three guys didn't necessarily pitch up to that sterling reputation in September. That's mm-hmm. part of the reason they couldn't close out the division as quickly as they wanted to. They didn't pitch up to that reputation in, in October either. And that's part of the reason they're golfing right now. Uh, it's It's – it's a lot of factors that all went together. And then when you, when you see a performance like they had in, in the final game where it just looked like they weren't going to get a hit, no matter who was on the mound for the opposing team, it's it's, it's kind of the way that, you know, it, it was kind of that, that perfect storm worst case scenario mm-hmm. that everybody was, was kind of fearing. Yes, they had the potential still, but they were going to need somebody to... You know, at least live up to their reputation, if not surpass their reputation. Then they certainly didn't have that. They really didn't have anybody who stepped up in that series, and you know, tried to put the team on their back. It just ended up kind of everybody collectively lost it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of follow
0: up on that. Uh, did, did did this year's team? Do you feel underperform, or or do you think they they were what they were? About a ninety win team that was a coin flip in the playoffs.
2: I think a little of both. I think you can I think you can if you argue either way, I don't think you're wrong. I think they were a ninety win team, 91-92. So maybe maybe you could say if they underperformed it was by one or two wins. I don't I don't think they underperformed by ten or fifteen, certainly. I think the part that nobody factored in and, and you know, a lot of us got have gotten grief over that for the last couple of years, picking the the Royals to either finish second or in some cases some, some, you know, journalists have picked them to finish first this year this was finally the year they put all that stuff together. Part of the reason it was so hard for the Tigers to close out the division is that the Royals were a stinking good team. Yeah, And and, and they finally put it together. So, you know, it, for everybody who picked them, you know, the, the past couple of years, you felt like you were, you know, throwing, throwing good money after bad and doubling down on that same bet. But it finally came through this year. That's a good team in the Royals, and they pushed the Tigers right to the end. Now, that's that's also where, you know, going forward, it gets kind of murky. Where do the Tigers figure they are in their window of opportunity? And where do they figure they are relative to the Royals? The Royals are probably, being the market they, that they are, they're probably going to lose some players. They're probably going to lose a James Shields. They may lose an Aoki. They may, you know, some of that team may may not stay together as long as the Tigers have managed to keep their core together. So it may be hard for them to be the same team next year. So the Tigers look at it as we've got this veteran core who can, you know, with a couple of tweaks, go right back out there and be the same team that it's always been. Or or is this one of those seasons kind of like, you know, when when you saw the big granderson for for Scherzer and Jackson trade where where Dave Dombrowski decides, okay, we've got to make a little bigger move to kind of tweak things and we've got to, We've got to prop that window open for a couple more years. To do that, we have to make a couple of big moves. I think you saw maybe a preemptive one of those last year when, you know, they, they swapped Prince for, uh, for Kinsler and made a couple of other moves that you could justify at least in, in the short term as being trying to keep the, that window open for, for a couple of years. But it's still going to be, it's still going to be a, a coin flip about which direction they take from here.
1: Yeah, we definitely want to get into you know some of your uh, predictions, so to speak, you know about the kind of things that Dombrowski will do going forward. But uh, I think the story of of 2014 has to be the bullpen, in terms of you know what what the Tigers did leading up to the season, uh, picking up Joe Nathan, um, especially you know signing a top flight proven closer for two years, and just the way that that bullpen uh, really you know was the dead weight that that more or less, I, I think anyway, you know, sank the team in 2014. Now, I know you've had the ability, the, the, the chance to have some up close and personal interactions with Dave Dombrowski, uh, not only this year, but in previous years, you've talked to him about this sort of thing. So in, in your opinion, what is the problem here? Why is it that Dave Dombrowski has had so many struggles in putting together a lockdown bullpen over the years?
2: I think one of the things that you have to put right out there at the beginning is just the nature of relief pitching in and of itself. Relief pitching is so hard to predict from year to year to year that it's hard for you to gamble on somebody who just had a very good year and hope that they continue that in your uniform. See, as you said, Joe Nathan, who realistically, statistically, last year was one of his best. Now, obviously, you look at his, his age and you kind of wonder, you know, how much of a fluke was that with as old as he is and how much is that going to come down? But re- realistically, when you look at the two options that were out there for that quote unquote proven closure, it was he and Brian Wilson. Neither of them had a good year. So even if they'd gone in the other direction and, and gotten Brian Wilson, you know, it, it may have ended up just as poorly. And obviously a, a big portion of the reason the Dodgers are sitting on the sidelines now is not always for the very same reason as the Tigers that, that their bullpen, you know, it, it didn't come together like they wanted it to. I, I think some of that is just, just that very fact that you're trying to gamble on, um, on, on something that's a very, very inconsistent proposition anyway. I remember, you know, when, when the Tigers first signed Joaquin Benoit four years ago, that that was considered a very risky proposition just because you were basically saying okay a guy with a, an extensive injury history you're banking on an extended contract for this guy and you're banking on the couple of good seasons that he had in Tampa are going to continue you know if you do that for a one or two year deal your exposure to that risk is not as great but when you do that for you know a three or four year deal then you're exposing yourself even more to the probability that that may not pan out it may pan out for one of those years, but it may not pan out for the entirety of the contract. And frankly, what they got out of that Joaquin Benoit contract is almost amazing given the fact, you know, that it is so inconsistent. It's so hard for relief pitching. I mean, you just look at a guy like uh, Fernando Rodden. His career is basically almost over. goes to Tampa, reinvents himself, becomes mm-hmm. a lockdown closer, and all of a sudden he's the guy. And then last year where he came right back down and was Fernando Rodney again and realistically when you went into the offseason I think there were a lot of people who might have thought I know the Tigers kind of looked at him the year he went to Tampa and, and would have liked him back in the bullpen as a setup guy or as a seventh inning guy I don't know how many teams were necessarily giving him a chance as a closure while he goes out to Seattle and reestablishes himself and it's kind of like you know okay so right now are we going to get odd year Fernando Rodney or are we going to get even year Fernando Rodney? I think that's part of the problem is that you can't never necessarily, you can necessarily tell or extrapolate how a relief pitcher is going to do just simply based on the last season because there's never that much continuity from year to year to year. Now, if you happen to have one of the great ones, if you have a Kimbrel, if you have a Mariano Rivera, obviously those guys are exceptions to that because they're dreadfully consistent from year to year. But by and large, relief pitchers aren't. And and when you're constantly gambling on, i got to go out and buy the best relief pitcher in the market, which is essentially what the Tigers have been doing since 2006. Mm -hmm. They've been, you know, investing. You you can't fault Dave Dombrowski for not investing in that portion because they've routinely gone out into the market and and overpaid, as some people said, for a Benoit when they got him, and overpaid for a Valverde. Some people said when they got him and paid, you know, $20 million for, for Joe Nathan. They've thrown money at it. The part of the problem is, like you said, it's not it's not produced the results they were hoping it would. Some of that is just the constant churn. And, and, and quite frankly, some of it is the inability to produce those guys from within the system. I don't remember how many years ago it was that, that Dombrowski said he had all of these relievers on the horizon. None of those guys have panned out. Everybody who's come to Detroit and had even a modicum of success had basically been a free agent that they'd brought in from the outside. It would certainly help if you had some reinforcements from within your system, and really the Tigers have not produced that either. You know, Bruce Rondone may have been one of the very first guys that they were going to bring through their system and have be a very valuable contributor to the bullpen, and obviously that. You know, injury. We laid that plan this year, and, and a little bit it did last year too. So, it's 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 a lot of it's a combination of different things. So you're right. That's that's the one thing that that Dave Dombrowski has been throwing darts at that bullpen. You know, trying to get it right for basically basically most of the times since 2006, and and very infrequently, with the exception of you know a couple of things like the Benoit signing and and Al Albuquerque. That was a heck of a minor league signing too. By Dombrowski and Alzila, but by and large, most of their darts had missed the target.
0: And uh, and to follow up on the controversial areas, I guess we could go with the manager as well, because uh, about 11 months ago, uh, Jim Leland, I guess, kind of surprised us all by announcing his retirement. And Dave Dombrowski, inked to a contract, was pretty much the hottest. Candidate at the time that would be Brad Osmus, even though he didn't have a lick of managerial experience, say, take that short stint in the World Baseball Classic out. Right. Uh, right now, the the opinion about Osmus' performance this past year really seems to be has divided the fan base, uh, especially now that Ron Gardenhire just happens to be available. Uh, so, and we even had a post on the site, you know, say maybe the Tigers should look into making a change at manager because garden hire uh, a very established uh, winning manager you know take those last four years out of the question is available right. so what kind of a grade would you give brad osmus and do you think there is a possibility of a change at the helm for next year
2: i would have said if they had not made the playoffs you know, much like I said you know, when we were talking about 2012, if Leland hadn't made the playoffs that year, he would have. I think all bets would have been off if, if they hadn't made the playoffs. I think in some respects making the playoffs gave him a little tiny modicum of, of job security that he might not have had otherwise. But you're right on, on that, that garden hire thing, because one of the first things that Dombrowski told us when we were discussing the managerial opening was that this year – that being last year. when they were looking for a manager, there wasn't a Terry Francona on the market. You know, and in some in some respects the timing for Leland didn't really help the Tigers any because there there wasn't a there wasn't a veteran guy who was an easy plug right in and, you know, let go with a with a veteran group that had a high expectations. There wasn't a garden hire available. There wasn't a Francona available last year. There was a the year before and now there is the year after. I think that has some credence in the fact that I think that's what they would have preferred to do. I think they would have preferred to have somebody had there been one available. And realistically, I'm not sure Manny Acta falls into that. You know, he was available last year, but I don't know how much, you know, you would, he's certainly not in the class with the other two guys. So I don't know that you would put that in there, but, I think they would have preferred to have a veteran hand at the helm last, you know, for this very season. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much of a difference that would have made. You know, they always talk about a manager making maybe, you know, plus or minus four or five games in a season. So maybe you're looking at, you know, if you think Brad costs them a couple of games, maybe you're looking at a 94, 95 win team. Well, that, that still puts them, I believe that still would have put them as the third seed. I can't remember what the, what the angels would have had. So it's, it would have been not a lot different as far as seeding in the playoffs. And I'm not sure, you know, the, the in game and in season moves may have been a little different, but, but in some, in some, in some ways, Ron Gardenhire is also. A little more of an old school guy who's probably going to use his bullpen in the very standard traditional ways that Brad did too. So you're probably not going to, again, you're probably not going to see your, your closer in the highest level, leverage situations. You may not, you know, you're probably not going to with Garden Hire see whoever the closer is in the seventh and you're going to see him in the ninth and you're going to see, you know, the setup guy in the eighth. So in that, in that respect, I think there would be a lot of similarities the manager is always going to be that guy. I know there are a lot of people who who, you know had had very strong feelings about Leland both positively and negatively and I think some of those same people who had negative feelings about Leland have negative feelings about awesomeness because in a lot of ways Mm. they did a lot of the same things. A lot of the same criticisms that you could could launch at at Leland you know being too loyal and, and, and going with the plan and sticking with it and going down with the ship with that plan sometimes both of those guys did those kind of things. And so the criticism, criticisms were a lot the same. I don't know that hiring a Ron Garden hire is going to break you out of that mold, mm-hmm. so to speak. Now, it could be that they decide to make that move. I, I, I don't know that that's, you know, from everything that, that Dombrowski has already said this off season, that they had no problems with Austin. So you didn't hear really any rumblings that there was any dissatisfaction or there were any... You know, there was any infighting or anything like that, like you had in the Houston situation with Bo Porter. You didn't really see that there was any sort of disconnect between Dombrowski and Osmer. So uh, those are the kind of the, the things you would look for for them to you mm-hmm. know want to make the the uh, the change. And, and yeah, going out in the first round is not exactly what the plan was. But I don't know that I don't know that that's seen as catastrophic enough for them mm-hmm. to go. Okay, well this guy's done after one season. Uh, so gut feeling is I think he's back, but I think the fact that Garden is on the market does make it a little more eyebrow raising mm-hmm. and and there's 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 a potential there that there wasn't had there been nobody on the market.
0: Right. And just to kind of follow up with the dichotomy between Jim Leland and Brad Osmus, I mean okay. just just at home you could see it just uh, a press conference for Jim Leland, he was you know camped out in his office, feet up on his desk you know, chopping on some, uh, potato salad and, and, and looking like the the old school crusty manager. Well, with Brad you it's, it seemed much more, uh, prof- I don't want to say professional, but much more, uh, uh, you know, with the, you know, standing in front of a background, like a real press conference. Can you maybe talk about the differences between working with Jim Leland and working with Brad Osmus?
2: Well, there are some goods and there are some bads in situations like that. I think, honestly, the the whole flap when when Brad made the ill-time joke about, you know, beating his wife, that whatever his intent was with that particular joke, it went over like a lead balloon simply because he was in front of cameras in a situation like that. Had that been in Jim's office with no cameras on, it probably would have been a different situation. And like I said earlier, there are a lot of times where Jim would take it off the record and, you know, kind of vent a little bit and then go back on the record and I'm not sure Brad I don't know if he didn't feel comfortable doing that but he, he rarely if ever did the off the record thing I, I think we were kind of counting you know the number of times I think there were maybe one or two times and that mm-hmm. was usually because somebody asked him a question saying this is off the record if you want it to be and he answered that question now that kind of leaves it up in the air so yeah there were some differences it, it was it was a different feel it was a different uh There was a little bit more button-up, you know, conservatism. Where sometimes Jim would say, "I'm not going to show you my cards," and then show you the cards, or at least give you, you know, a a poker player's tell of what what his Mm -hmm. cards might be. Whereas with Brad, especially you know, learning somebody that we don't know in that in that respect as well as we did with Leo, and there was a little bit more button-up. But quite frankly, as 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 a lot of us said right from the beginning, I think that's what Dombrowski prefers. I think Dave Dombrowski loves the fact that that Brad Brad Office is never gonna, you know, open up and and tell people and and go off the record. I, I think some of those things were he understood and he had a very good relationship with Jim Leland, but I think those were also some of the things that made him very uncomfortable about Jim Leland is that Jim would go off the record and and he would maybe you know. Let people in on on things, not necessarily secrets or anything like that, but give it give people a little more a little more insight. Because, as you guys know, David Ambroski is one of the closest to the best people, and from him it trickles down to the rest of the organization. It's one of the most buttoned up, you know, close to the best organizations around in sports. I mean, it's hard to it, it's hard to get inside information about what's going on with the Tigers just because no one no one opens their mouth, and, and that comes right down from the top. So. In that respect, I think the way that Brad conducted himself this year in a very, very more, like I said, buttoned up kind of thing, it's it very more, it very much more formal. Like you said, it was in front of a you know, a backdrop with a sponsor and everything, and it was very much more like a press conference. That's, I think, the way that they would pr- prefer to have portrayed the organization rather than, like you said, the, the Jim Leland, you know, chomping on the... Bill Parmesan at his desk after the camera had left. Uh, I think they were a little uncomfortable with that. Not that they not that they were going to tell him to change because Jim had, you know, 50 years of baseball experience on his side where basically he'd go, this is who I am. With Brad, it's a little different. And I think, you know, not that he was out to impress people necessarily, but I, I think he, he wanted to make sure he was presenting a, a very, you know, formal front to, to everyone in the world.
1: Yeah, you don't want to challenge Jim Leland because the man eats unfiltered cigarettes for a living. So, I'm pretty sure he would he would knife you in a fight. So, <laughs> but uh so we we're, we're looking forward now, Matthew, and I, we really appreciate the time you've taken. We've obviously already taken more of your time than we than we anticipated, but uh looking forward to the to the next season, to 2015. I know a lot of the Tiger fan base is already furiously scanning the uh, MLB rosters and looking at uh, free agents and, you know, what we've got in the minor leagues and what, what possible moves might be made. And it seems like in the last couple of years, there have always been one or two quote unquote blockbuster trades or moves, maybe not necessarily trades, but uh, you know, big moves that Dave Dombrowski has made in the off seasons, whether that's, you know, unloading Prince field or signing Joe Nathan, uh, adding uh Tori Hunter to the, to the roster. Um, uh, in your opinion what are the what are the top two or three moves that uh, Dombrowski will make in this offseason to kind of shore up the team for another uh, hopefully another deep postseason run
2: well I think that the part that you have to get into beforehand is where the mindset is of Dave Dombrowski and, and frankly where the where the mindset is of, of the owner, Mike Illich, if they're still going to stay in that win now mode, which they've been in basically since they had—I've always argued that 2006 was too quick because they—they they had not really laid the foundation, you know, organization-wise of of having a farm system that was really seriously going to support you know, a major league team. So they've been in win now mode since then, which means they're burning through prospects left and right because every one of these trades takes two or three of their top prospects out of the system. So those guys are never helping. You know, some of those some of those a lot of those guys have never panned out. But realistically what's happened is that they've been in this win now mode almost since the start, since Dombrowski, you know, took over the reins from Randy Smith. That they've they've been in this very, you know, Focused environment of trying to do everything to win now. And I would, I would venture a guess that that's probably how they're going to stay just based on, you know, how badly Mike Tillich wants to win a title and how much everybody wants to win one for him in the organization. I would bet that that's how they're going to do so. Very likely you could see a couple of tweaks. I would, I would think that that, that would probably be the more logical route is that, you know, you're probably going to wave goodbye to Max Scherzer and get a draft pick in return. Conceivable that same thing could happen with Victor Martinez if the bidding gets too out of whack and, you know, somebody offers him just ungodly amounts of money or a long contract, you know, into his 40s. I don't know that the Tigers are going to match that. So conceivably, those could be the big moves in one respect in that those guys move on and you get the draft picks in return for them. Could there be a big trade? Uh, you know, I've heard it kicked around, and I heard it kicked around right after the, the Prince Field trade and Kingsler trade that, that Kinsler maybe wasn't a long-term fit for the Tigers. You know, it was kind of a, a a middle of a process of kind of spinning down that big, bad contract that they had with Prince into a less bad contract with Kingsler. But that eventually probably will look like a pretty bad contract. So maybe you, you take his potential gold glove season and you spin him off for a couple of things because – as we know, they've got some some middle infielders finally moving through the mm-hmm. system that they could plug into that spot, you know, maybe maybe you go after a corner outfielder or maybe you go after a center fielder because God knows I don't know that how the Tigers can justify going through hundred and sixty two games of Roger Davis in center field mm-hmm. as nice a guy as Roger as yes, he's a complimentary piece, and i don't I don't know if they can do that now. You're right, it's been, it's been Dave Dombrowski's M.O., wherever he's been, to kind of make those big splash deals, whether it's a signing early on in free agency or whether it's a, a couple of years ago, it was a re-signing of Anibal Sanchez, um, where, where that's the big splash news, and, and they kind of have those headline trades. I was having a discussion, you know, I, I kind of wrote out a 10-point plan of what I thought the Tigers should do, and I was having a discussion with somebody on Twitter who compared that to waiting for Christmas and opening up your presents and getting socks i would i'd advocate that the Tigers have all of the nice dress suits that they need and all of the big contract players that they can handle at this point they need some socks they need some some bullpen arms they need two three maybe even four bullpen arms to really flesh out that bullpen into a legitimate major league unit and they may need to look at ways to you know figure out the center field position by getting a little younger maybe and trading for somebody you' You know, figure out what they're going to do post Victor Martinez and then go out and get a DH. I don't, I don't know that there's necessarily a, a big, huge splash move that they can make that makes a tremendous amount of sense because I think a lot of the splash moves that they could make either by re signing Victor Martinez or re signing Max Scherzer or re signing both would be a continuation of kind of that, that plan of, of, You know, keeping those that core of stars intact. Well, that's getting very, very, very expensive to do. You have basically a hundred million dollars tied up in a half dozen players right now, and and all that's going to do over the next couple of years is make that whole stars and scrubs kind of atmosphere for the Tigers, where they have a bunch of really expensive players. And a bunch of fringe players that, that are affordable on the other end of the spectrum. that's a lot of what they happen, happened over the last couple of years where they've got, you know, a couple of high priced arms in the bullpen and then a lot of guys like, you know, Pat McCoy or, you know, Blaine Hardy, you know, guys who, who might give you something maybe, but aren't guaranteed to because they're affordable. Those are the guys that you can ship in and out because because you can afford them. Because all of your money is allocated toward, you know, like Joe Nathan in the bullpen, or you know, uh, uh, having a rotation with three or four guys that command twenty million dollars a year, that that takes its toll after a while. So I, I think it's conceivable you could see another spin-down kind of move, and, and you could see like maybe a guy like David Aardsma headed out of town and see what they can get for him. But other than that, I don't I don't necessarily see it. On the horizon for the Tigers, I think I think they may end up with one of those off where, you know, it's, it's a series of smaller moves and smaller deals just to kind of fill in the packs.
1: So, if you had to predict, and we're going to put you on the spot here because we like to, you know, make people go on the record with predictions that will eventually be proven wrong. Um, If you had to predict what that one big move is going to be, would you lean more towards, oh, they signed Victor Martinez for four years and that's the biggest move they make? Or would you predict that they're going to do something crazy like, uh, I don't know, go after uh, Jacoby Ellsbury in center field? As unlikely as that may seem, something along those lines
2: conceivable. I don't know if there's any reason to think that the Yankees would be willing to move him after just one year. I think that that's a very good, a very likely possibility, though, that there is somebody that they trade for yeah, to to kind of fill that center field role. That, but I'm not sure how enamored they were with Austin Jackson long term. But once they took him out of that center field equation, they really did not have a legitimate major league center fielder. So I would not be shocked if they do make a move somehow free agency. You look at the list of center fielders that are going to be available unless the nationals turned down the, the option on Denard's Span, it, It's basically Colby Rasmus and that's not really that impressive. Um, but there are a couple of guys. You you look at a couple of the outfields around the league, Boston being one of them, you know, St. Louis being another, where they have a long jam of a lot of players and they might be willing to move one of the guys that have been, you know, either a disappointment or, or maybe kind of stuck in the middle. You know, maybe you could see a Jackie Bradley Junior spring free, or maybe I guess if you make it a bigger deal, it could be a Mookie Betts or somebody like that, young, or it could be a Peter Borders who, you know, the the Cardinals traded for yeah i th- i think if they end up making if the tigers end up making a big splash move yeah i think it will be mm-hmm. victor martinez for four years but i think the more important move, maybe, if they make a com- kind of a complementary move, maybe a secondary move, and, and pull a trade off for, for somebody who can kind of plug that gap in center field until a guy like you know Austin Shots or a guy like you know Derek Hills is, is ready to take over. But that's that's three or four years from now, so you kind of have to kind of have that middle plan. And I don't think they really have that at the at the moment.
0: All right. Uh, well, to kind of wrap things up, uh, we, well, obviously we've run over, so we, I, and you have a child you need to take care of. <laughs> so, uh, work, uh, obviously they can find your articles at theoklandpress.com, of course, in the, uh, in, uh, in print at, you know, in your local newspaper in the o- in the Oakland Press in Oakland County. But how can they follow you online? Where's the best place to, uh, find everything you do?
2: Uh, the best place is to find me on Twitter at, at, at Matthew, M-H-T-H-E-W. M o w e r y and and I'm almost always on Twitter. I have it going, you know, all the time. So anybody can ask me questions there. You may not like the answers I give, but uh, I will I will at least respond to your questions, even if they're not the not the answers that you like. Or or you can email me at matt. m o w e r y at oakpress. o a k p r e s s. dot com.
0: All right. Awesome. And and, and Hookslide and I can uh, vouch for Matthew. He's a great follow on Twitter, very entertaining during games. And uh, let's try and boost his follower count. So uh, please uh, follow good. Matthew. So thanks again, Matt, and uh, hopefully we'll have, be able to talk about a more pleasant topic next time we have you on.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Right.
0: Thank you.
1: Well, Hookslide, postmortem done. So yeah, re- remind me that I did promise Matthew we would have him on for the World Series win next year. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: I'm, I'll write that down right now.
1: Okay, <laughs> put it on the calendar. So yeah,
0: yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's uh, we've kind of uh, we've hit the, uh, kind of like the Grand Slam when it comes to media guys who follow the Tigers at this point. So it's uh, I think Matthew was a nice way to kind of cap, put a capper on our our beat writer tour and our you know the 2014 season in a way because realistically it's all about 2015 now so right before we get to 2015 no you
1: just want to say certainly we're gonna um you know even with the season being over we we still have podcasts to record for the off season and uh you know i'm I'm kind of pledging to our, our listening audience that we will have uh you know continual visits by by some of these same guests we'll get them back on the show in the offseason to help us kind of work through you know the upcoming trades and uh, you know signings and all that kind of good stuff too
0: yeah cuz right now it's we really isn't well, at least when it comes to the uh offseason it's nothing's really realistically going to happen because the playoffs are still underway and usually that means uh, Major League Baseball says, you know, ask for, for the most part, a moratorium on any kind of move by by the teams in the league. So I'm not expecting the Tigers to really do much of anything until after the World Series at this point.
1: No, I mean, I think that's pretty typical too. I know there's yeah. there's kind of a, a built-in deadline that happens after the, the World Series is finished. So, right. you know, we, we figure we're going to give them a couple of weeks to kind of regroup and then decide where, where to go from there.
0: Yeah, and, uh, well... Uh, why don't we kind of uh we'll look back at least a little bit on this uh, season ourselves in the in the um, ALDS? Uh, one, yeah, uh, I don't, it's and this has been kind of an ongoing topic with us, but it really does seem like this was a miserable season, even though it was a winning season and a very good season, no, a ninety win team. I would have killed for a ninety win team ten years ago, but when you factor that in with getting swept out of the playoffs, this you know. I really, I'm having trouble just kind of putting my feelings together about this season because uh, this is one of those years, folks, I'll look back at it and just think, God, that was awful. (laughs) Even though it was a good team. And that's the weird
1: part. No, I mean, it certainly felt that way. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a bit of uh, schizophrenia, I think, at least on my part, you know, Mm -hmm. that uh, when it came to the uh, division series, I... I picked the Tigers to win. I really did think they would fare better against mm-hmm. the Orioles than they than they did. Um, but take that out of the equation, and you look back at the regular season. And at the same time, I can look at that and say, yeah, I didn't really expect them to go very deep into the playoffs to begin mm-hmm. with. Yeah. Regardless of the opposition, you know, in the ALDS, because it was yeah. just that kind of year. Like you said, ninety yeah. wins is great, but the way that they got there never really seemed like a, a kind of a confidence, you know. Yeah. Team that was going to really, you know, put the fear of God into anybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good way to put it because uh, some of the other teams that the Tigers teams over the last few years we followed closely. Yeah. That's exactly what they felt like a team that could just, you know, put the mash their foot on the gas pedal and just storm their way to, the, you know, to a deep postseason run. And this team just seemed to be. For whatever reason, it was misfiring on something, be it a, you know, a, a loose spark plug wire or, or something. You know what I'm saying? This team just never felt like it was ever hitting on all cylinders, save for that stretch early in the season when they
2: yes. got off to that yes. really fast start. But yeah. other
0: than that, it's like something happened with the with this mix of a team that just, you know, that made it that really turned it into they were a, for the most part a 500 team remainder of the way actually below 500 for long stretches
1: no that, that that's key i mean when you look at the first you know month and a half of the season they were after a super super hot start mm-hmm. uh you know whatever the that, that record was 27 and 12 or whatever it was yeah we were even
0: know. making references to 35 and 5
1: sure yeah i mean they were incredibly hot you know for the first month and a half and then like you said uh, literally for the rest of the season they barely played above 500 and, uh, you know, at the end of the year, you can total up all the stats and say 90-win team, but, you know, recognizing that a lot of that was due to the – I mean, I'm ha- I have to say at this point it was a fluky start. Yeah. You know, and the, and the real team kind of emerged at the, at the end of the year or, or shortly after May, you know, the middle of May, um, yeah. that they were barely above a 500 team, you know, from the get-go.
0: Yeah, And, and just let me ask you this, you know, about uh, this team in particular, because, you know, I kind of asked Matthew was – You know, was this the team we thought they were? You know, this is the team that either underachieved or not. I guess the question is, do you feel like last year was the year, and they kind of that's that was the World Series year, and they let it get away from them compared to this year? Because this year, that last year's team just seemed to have more of a a championship
1: aura around them compared to this one. Uh, You're asking the window question.
0: Yeah, I guess you put it that way, yeah, because it really kind of, in a way, at least with the way this team is assembled, it kind of feels like, you know, if the door, I don't, th- I'm not going to say the door is closed,
1: but it feels like it's starting to close. Okay, okay. I mean, taking it from that angle, uh, you, you know, with a general manager like Dave Dombrowski, I don't feel like the window is ever really closing yeah. You know, any more than a third of an inch one way or the other, you know, mm-hmm. in either direction, yeah. Uh because 2015 could look completely different than 2014. And, and, yeah. and then, you know, forget about 2016, 2017. As long as Dombrowski is the one making the moves, I think they've got that window pretty wide open. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: that, but see, it's that's, same. that's yeah. That and Mike Illich, of course, if w- Millich is willing to keep that payroll high.
1: Uh, yeah, another good point because we don't know how long you know he's going to be the one writing the checks. Right. Uh, you know, so there is that issue you know on the table. But um, this was just—it was a bizarre year. I don't—I don't take 2014 as a sign that the window is closing per se. I, I take it as just a very, very unlucky year.
2: Yeah.
1: In terms of the injuries that hit the team early on, not—not um, not even just the outright injuries of you know Iglesias and Dirks and Rondone and, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, Sanchez you know, being out Mm -hmm. twice during the year for, for Mm -hmm. periods of time. But, you know, above and beyond that, you had uh, Cabrera and Verlander, you know, trying to come back from off season surgeries. So the whole Mm -hmm. thing was kind of, I don't know, just the deck was stacked against the team. Maybe a a bit from the start, you'd like to see what the team would look like next year with, you know, Jose Iglesias and Ian Kinsler providing the up the middle defense jerks back in left field uh, Rondon available in the bullpen, um and the tigers are able to um you know make some trading moves or what have you without having to uh, be uh reactive yeah in the sense of having to fill holes that they didn't expect to be there as opposed to being proactive and, and just looking to build the team yeah it's uh, uh
0: yeah yeah when you put it that way uh, I I think they uh, there's going to be some moves made and I I'm kind of fall on the side of There's going to be a big trade, and it's going to be for a center fielder. I just don't know who that center fielder is because this team cannot go through another season like we saw in the last two months of the year after they traded Austin Jackson. They just cannot. And the free agent market, when Colby Rasmus is the best center fielder available, Dave Dabrowski is going to have to be burning phone lines to to make a deal because, you know, either for another Austin Jackson, you know, a highly thought-of prospect who's on the verge of breaking through, or, you know, or... You know, I—it's it, got to be something like that because the outfield—you know—thank goodness for JD Martinez that he broke through and he's got—he's locked down a, a corner outfield position. But if you ask me right now, I don't know who two thirds of the outfield is going to be next year. And the most important third, being center field defensively, is a utter question mark because I don't see Rajay Davis being a full time center fielder.
1: No, and I'm not sure that the Tigers ever anticipated yeah. having to trade Austin Jackson. Mm-hmm. This this season, there were obviously a, a series of, of steps made that led to that decision uh, and needing to or the, the felt need to shore up the starting rotation with David Price. Um, yeah. You know, so that, that's a difficult question.
0: Yeah. And let's not bring up what Doug Fister did in the playoffs. No, um, <laughs> yeah.
1: no. Let's, let's, yeah. let's, not. let's not go there. <laughs> that that deal was done a long time yes. ago. It's yes. over.
0: Yeah. That, you know what? Uh, I think that's going to be the new uh, John Smoltz trade is oh, the man. Doug Fister trade. That's going to be the one everybody refers back to as, an, oh, my God, we should not make a deal because it could be Doug Fister."
1: Well, if, if he goes on to win you know, multiple Cy Young awards oh, yeah. in the next several years, then I will buy you a six-pack. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying that to say that that's not going to happen. but
0: No, yeah. but I'm, I'm just saying, no, that's going to be a, a, a bad trade because think about it. The Tigers got absolutely nothing out of the guys they tra- made the deal for. And Really, and realistically, the jury is still way, way out on both Robbie Ray and Kroll. Uh, it's just one of those, and obviously, Doug Fister had a Doug Fister season. He actually had a career season. And, uh, you know, I, I, you at this point, it's speeding on a dead horse because I guess, um, and we'll never really know, I think, the, hook slide, the true reasons behind that trade because, uh, there was, you know, there was thought, was it money? Was it the upcoming contract uh, negotiation? Was it the clear money for Max Scherzer? Or, you know, was it that he is just so in love with Robbie Ray? That was the cost. I don't think we'll ever, ever find out the true reason for that deal.
1: Nope. No, you can't. I mean, because Dombrowski, like like uh, Matthew was just saying, yep. plays his cards so close to the vest. You know, I don't know if we'll ever get a straight answer, mm-hmm. you know, as to why that trade went down. But, uh, you know, in terms of looking back and doing the, the true post mortem, um, you know, I, I would say that this this team slated to be really, really good, but that was predicated on having awesome defense. Yeah. And they,
0: That's right. it, they really sold that too. They, they did really
1: they knew they were losing some offense and ironically the offense turned out to be just as good if you know not slightly better than than last year in terms of spreading yeah. those runs around there weren't as many blowouts but they seemed pretty consistent throughout the year uh and led the, the the American League in many of the meaningful categories offensively but the 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 sticking point was the defense you know it was supposed to be a better team defensively and the injuries killed that and so i feel like 2014 will always be the the the, the question mark season of what could have been yeah, you know, if they had had Jose Iglesias at shortstop, if they had been able to keep Austin Jackson in center field, if they had had Andy Dirks, mm. being able to do a true platoon split with Roger Davis yeah. in left field, we'll, we'll never know. I mean, unless you know, maybe we will know in, next year. You know, mm. when some of those pieces are back in the uh, back in the equation.
0: Yeah, I just don't want to go through another season of Torrey Hunter in the right field. You know, his bat is surprisingly, even though he talked about an up and he had a monstrous up and down season. He. I think there was one month where his OPS was below five. Then he had other months where his OPS was pushing a thousand, but his defense was always, always bad. And uh, the, you know, you're right because when you factor in the awful outfield defense, and it got much worse after the uh, Austin Jackson trade. Then you factor in uh, the, the, the patchwork they had at shortstop. Could you could you have pictured an up to middle defense of Iglesias and Kinsler? Nothing plus, would have got through. Yeah, Nothing plus Jackson would have got through. And yeah, and Jackson in center. Nothing would have got through. Even though Jackson, I don't think, is quite the defender he was a couple of years ago. It was, it's it, no, that up the middle defense was looked to be very, very good going into the season and really just wasn't there. And let, let's not forget, Alex Avila, part of up the middle defense, is a, if you ask me, he's a question mark at this point because of the concussion problems.
1: No, he is, and that's that's a very disturbing. You know, prospect to kind of look at going forward is you know three concussions this year, and who knows how many you know in his career. Uh, It's definitely a question that needs to be answered whether they bring Ovila back or whether he finally hangs up the gear for the you know for his career. Um, But we you know we certainly saw I think both with the Orioles and also with the Royals in the postseason just how far defense goes. Yeah, yeah. You know when you're hitting those, uh, you know the BABIP, you know, figure mm-hmm. yeah. when you're, when you're hitting those line drives into the outfield, you know, and, and they're not falling in for hits because you've got center fielders that can cover, you yeah, know, Yeah, Lorenzo Cain, has made some awesome plays for the Royals. For sure. Example. Sure. Yeah. When those, when those guys can cover, you know, five football field lengths of, you know, ground out there, it's, it's a difficult thing. So, yeah. you know, maybe, yeah. maybe the Tigers need to kind of refactor and say offense is maybe slightly less important than having really, really good defense.
0: Yeah. Cause, uh, you say what you will about the Royals, they can pick it. And that's one thing the Tigers just can't do. But, uh, obviously any kind of postmortem, uh, really has to involve the bullpen. As you put it in the show notes, uh, it's a Hindenburg disaster. Oh, the humanity, so to speak. Uh, and at times it was. I, I really did feel like saying, oh, the humanity, whenever the eighth or ninth innings rolled around. I really, that when it comes to actually fixing the bullpen, I really, you know, one, one big fix would actually be like, determining the proper role for Joaquin Soria cuz I really don't think he's going to his track record and his age he's not he's not pushing his late he's not pushing 40 years old he's I think he's right around 30 years old Joaquin Soria would go a, a healthy Joaquin Soria that has a, a defined role I think would go a long way towards help solidifying back into that bullpen uh I just have to believe that Soria the injury to Soria just Ruined his season and in a lot of ways played a part in the Tigers season ending early because he just did not look like the same pitcher after especially after the injury uh
1: you know i I think I would tend to disagree yeah that, that he played a role in that in that sense in terms of his you know implosions the couple of times mm-hmm. uh, you know early on that he went out and gave up uh, you know a bunch of runs and, and just didn't seem to be himself yeah. um I think it had a lot more to do with the way that Brad Osmus used him. Uh, yeah, or or the
0: undefined role, so to speak?
1: Sure. Or did not use him, I guess, would be yeah. the, the better way to put it. Yeah, that would be a better <laughs> way to put it. What role? <laughs> he didn't have one. He wasn't used. You're right. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult. When you bring in a guy who's uh, one of those, uh, you know, quote-unquote proven closers, mm-hmm. uh, and then you kind of relegate him to if we need him maybe in the seventh inning. Yeah. Or if one of the other guys is not available, if, if Jabba's not available, if Nathan's not available, then we'll maybe slate him. And, you know, it, it's not yeah, a lot of work.
0: What would he he'd say? I was going to use him if the game was tied kind of thing.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's an afterthought reliever at that point. And, uh, you know, Tony Paul just wrote an article today that I thought was pretty insightful in, in saying, if you're walking Soria, you, you've proven your, your medal, you know, as a closer. And then you get brought to a team that, that does relegate you to the afterthought, you know, role is that a team that you want to sign with the next year? You know, I mean, that, that could play a role in whether or not he decides to, to even come back to the team. Uh, That's you know, a good point. Or, or push for a trade, you know, somewhere else.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, I, and I, I know how I, I, I would put my money, I would be more willing to put that money on Joaquin Sorian and Joe Nathan at this point. I, and I'll say what you will about Nathan, that the Tigers do owe him $10 million for next year give or take, you know, a few hundred thousand, whatever it is. Uh, I just don't see Nathan being quote-unquote Joe Nathan anymore. Uh, this entire season, he was literally a flip of the coin, literally and figuratively, however you want to put it. And this this is, might be one of those questions. I, in the future of doing Nathan, you know, $10 million is a huge hit to take on your payroll, but... Don't you, Joaquim Soria, you have a ready-made, proven closer in Joaquin Soria, and you have a closer who looks to be completely on a decline, who really, much like the other closers the Tigers have had over the years, you know, uh, Papa Grande and Todd Jones, who, if they weren't closing, they really didn't have a role. Uh, you know, it, it's it'd be a huge hit, but I would, I would not be upset if the Tigers ate Joe Nathan's contract and let him walk. Okay. Not that it's going to yeah. happen, but I would. I I I think it would be best for the Tigers overall.
1: I, I'm trying to look at it from the other side of the coin you know as as we just talked about with matthew that you know relievers are a coin flip they can be dominant one year they're mercurial and fungible yes I like this they're they're yes. assholes is what they are. <laughs> 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 because they're so unpredictable yeah. and, and yet joe nathan has has been i think one of the most predictable over his career that's the thing yeah so you never know that next year he comes out and he looks like you know, fill in the blank. Dan Quisenberry, Bruce Suter, Jeff Reardon. You know, if you're yeah. a younger listener than Mariano Rivera or Hell, Car- I'll take
0: even Lee Smith.
1: Lee Smith, you know, yeah. he may look awesome next year. You don't I guess, know.
0: I guess that's the thing. Yeah, uh, you, you bring him the spring training and then you make it, maybe you can make a decision then.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I I have a post queued up for uh, sometime this weekend. I'm sure by the time this podcast goes up, it'll already be up on the site. But kind of going into looking at uh, Dave Dombrowski's philosophy on building a bullpen that, that, you know, we got very frustrated with the way Brad Ausmus managed the bullpen, which was very, you know, robotic. It was very push button. It was very flow chart. In word, it was it was role based. Yeah, I have a seventh inning guy. I have an eighth inning guy. I've got the closer, and he didn't deviate from that. But my contention is that Dombrowski builds the bullpen exactly the same exactly way. That way, yeah. I got to go out and find a closer. Now I find a closer. Now I got to find an eighth inning guy. Now I got to find a seventh inning guy. And because relievers are such a coin flip, it's 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 too risky. Yeah, to build a bullpen based on roles. Yeah. So, yeah, because
0: uh, as, as Matthew as, as Matthew said, the Tigers did get kind of lucky on the Benoit deal. I mean, they gave him a lot of money for a setup guy, and he proved to be a very, very good setup guy. But he, t- as you're saying, he tended to be the exception to the rule.
1: Well, and Benoit is a great case study for the very point they're trying to make that if you yeah. sign, uh, rather if you build a bullpen according to the the numbers, the roles, you know, seventh mm-hmm. inning, eighth inning, ninth inning, uh, it, it's a it's a crapshoot. You're you're rolling the yeah. dice. There's a great case study that, that Dombrowski goes out and signs a proven closer, so to speak. He assigns him the ninth inning rule. Osmond uses Joe Nathan in the ninth inning rule exclusively. Yeah. And he fails. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, a guy who was traditionally pegged as eighth inning guy in, uh, uh, Joaquin Benoit. Yeah. Did you see the numbers he posted in San Diego this year? Uh, I, mean, I haven't looked at him recently, but he was having a very good year. We're talking a WHIP of like .7 yeah. something. Yeah. We're talking, he was better than uh, he was with the Tigers. An ERA of one point seven somewhere. Yeah. I mean, so he posted awesome numbers, and this poor guy was relegated to the eighth inning in San Diego as he was for years in in Detroit.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like he—that's he, what him. he's been pegged as by Major League Baseball. He's an eighth inning guy, even though he was very successful as the Tigers closer last year.
1: Right, and the, and the irony is that if they had you know picked up. Benoit. Instead of going out and spending big money on a "quote unquote" ninth inning guy, yeah, they would have had way better success with Benoit this year than they did with Nathan. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. you you don't build a bullpen by roles. You have to build it, you know, by talent, by, by, by talent. arms. Yes, yes, yeah, you know, and
0: and hopefully get lucky occasionally, so, such as the Al Albuquerque's of the world. Who you know, I I found LL kind of got forgotten too uh, towards uh, towards the end of the year, and like I said, he. He barely uh, showed up in the playoffs himself. Again, we could go on and on about the Tigers bullpen. Yeah, but let's go on and on about Brad Ausmus.
1: Just just, just to make you really, really mad. Yeah, go for uh, it. If you you sort out the stat sheet in terms of the relievers this year, the guy with the best numbers in the bullpen overall, whether you measure it by ERA or by WHIP or K per nine or whatever, it was Albuquerque. Yeah. The guy who got some of the—I mean, just the most overlooked. Reliever in the pen, and it comes down to that uh, horrible game two in the ALDS when you know we needed a guy in the eighth inning to be the, the crisis man, to be the fireman, mm-hmm. and, and he's
0: proven to be able to do it in the past because that, that damn slider that gets, a strikeout he gets the strikeouts he gets the needs
1: He gets. Yeah. I mean, I know he puts guys on base, but that's a key to being a good reliever. Is that even if you put the guys on base, you can still strike your way out of the out of the situation. And and you know we we will wrap up the, the 2014 season, the, the postseason at least with. Brad Osmus's quote of saying, you know, hey, when we use Albie, it's usually in the sixth. Yeah. That's just stupid.
0: Yeah, yeah. We, considering how talented, that, that he misses bats. Best the Tigers lack relievers who bullpen, miss bats. Al,
1: yeah. Best numbers in the bullpen at the end of the year. And he was the yeah. guy that we don't use him because it's not the sixth.
0: Well, well, that leads us to Brad Ausmus. <laughs> uh, and from all accounts, uh, he was, well, the tigers and you know, if if the tigers are what they are and and i tend to agree with what matthew said that realistically the on field moves only affect maybe a handful of games a year maybe a, a couple games in the win loss column regardless of that uh, he you can't i i really even though this team made the playoffs and i have a hard try, i have a really hard time giving osmus a passing grade on this on uh, on his job this year, you know, a, you know, I, I think I'm being generous if I give him a C. Just, you know, you know, obviously I don't, uh, I don't agree with a lot of his on-field maneuvering, but more than anything else, though, is just that I, it just feels like he just butchered the handling of the bullpen, and at times I think his inexperience caused him to get kind of bulldozed by, by guys like Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. Uh, you know, keep you know, and you know. Again, we don't know what happened behind the scenes. From all accounts, as Matthew said, uh, there was no issues in the clubhouse. There was, um, and there was just the occasional hiccup. I think more due to his inexperience. But this team was built to win a World Series. The team didn't. So the question is: Does that make him a failure? Or does that just make him a victim of circumstance?
1: Well, I mean, I think there are a couple of games in the season that you can definitely point to with with as much certainty as we can muster in those situations and say that he lost those games, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it be ALDS game two you Mm -hmm. and the the way he managed the bullpen there. But there was even that series in Toronto uh, where he brought in Joe Nathan in the one game. Uh, Joe threw 30-plus pitches, barely got out. He might have even blown the save in that situation. Actually, I, th- I think he got out of it. But the point is, the next day, they're back in that same situation, clinging to a two-run lead or whatever it was in the ninth, and he brought Nathan back out.
0: Yeah, and that and I think that's the game that ended up in 19 innings in the Tigers' loss. Uh,
1: if it wasn't that one, it, no, I think he blew that one. Yeah. I think he actually blew that save in the ninth, and then, you're, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right, it was the, the 19 inning game. Um, so there, there, there are a couple of games like that where you figure, yeah. you know, yep, yeah, Osmus cost him a game in that situation because he was too married to the role-based bullpen. Um on the other hand,
0: mm-hmm.
1: he's a rookie manager. Yep. Dave Dombrowski built the bullpen by you know by the roles. Yep. So you could say that Osmus simply followed the blueprint that Dombrowski set for him in managing yeah. the bullpen. I don't think he was in a situation as a rookie manager to do as much of the maybe some of the creative outside the you know box thinking that, that, mm. that he might have wanted to do. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, you got to put yourself in this position. You know, it's, it's my first year managing this team. There's huge expectations. This is a team that's yeah. been to the playoffs three years in a row. All of the, you know, pundits and the Vegas picks are saying this is a World Series team. That's a lot of pressure to go out there and say, uh, you know, mm-hmm. maybe I should just stick by the book. Yeah. And not do anything too crazy off the wall. Because if I fail in this, I'm going to have a lot of explaining to do. But if I play it by the book, no matter what happens, I at least have the excuse you know, saying, "Well, I, I followed the book of management," you know, chapter three, verse seventeen. You know, so
0: yeah. well, go into that though. Uh, well, do you think he was badly outmanaged by Buck Showalter? Because Buck Showalter, at least against the Tigers, showed he was willing to go outside the box. For example, in his use of the bullpen. For example, the use of Andrew Miller.
1: Right, bringing in the yeah. eighth inning guy in the sixth, yeah, right? Exactly, and letting yeah. him pitch two innings, and bringing in your yeah. closer in the eighth inning, and letting him there pitch, you know, that kind of thing. Absolutely, I would say, you know, Showalter had a much more um, broad-minded view, mm-hmm. but you know, credit to the guys that are also saying, hey, he had more options to work with too. Yes, yeah. I know there's some of that, that that factors into it, but I think Osmus had more options than than uh, we realize. Again, we were just Mm -hmm. saying Albuquerque was a great option for him that he just simply chose not to use. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a little bit of both. Yes, he had an inferior bullpen to work with, but he also didn't really make the most out of it either. Well,
0: uh, do you think this might be the first offseason we'll we'll see maybe not a Teflon Dave Dombrowski? Uh, Because for the most part, uh, his moves have been very successful. But I think, you know, since the Tigers have become serious contenders... This was probably his worst off-season season since uh,
1: 2009. It was their worst off-season season in history. Yeah, if you want, yeah, I guess you could put it that way. Uh, somebody had posted that that yeah. factoid that the Tigers had never been bounced in the first yeah. round of any playoffs in their entire history, unless you count the one mm-hmm. series back in like 1908 or whatever it was yeah. when they got swept by the uh Chicago Cubs but even then they they ended in a tie in the first game yeah so asterisks you know abound Mm -hmm. but um yeah it was absolutely the worst postseason I think in their history so uh Dombrowski has some questions to answer and it'll be very very interesting to see what he comes back with
0: yeah because you know he's not going to answer them we'll just have well we'll see his supposed answers when moves are made and I guess that's we have we still have to wait a while for those moves to be made but Uh, Yeah, you make a good point that, yeah, you you can blame Brad Ausmus for some of the things he did, but you're right, he was put into a position... You could make an argument he was put in a position to fail by the moves made or not made by Dave DeBruns.
1: No, sure. I mean, he could have managed that bullpen and gotten a lot more out of it, I think, if he had yeah. been less married to the roles, if he had moved Joe Nathan and Jubba Chamberlain around, you know, used more of the guys that were hot at the time, that, yeah. that sort of thing. He could have made more out of it than he did. But at the same time, yes, he had an inferior bullpen to work with. It's not like he had Ned Yost's mm-hmm. lineup of, you know, Kelvin Herrera, Wade Davis, and, and uh, what's his name, Derek Holland, yeah, or Greg Holland. Greg Holland, Greg yeah. Holland you Greg know, Holland. to work with. You look at it that way and say, when you have a, a dynamite bullpen lineup like that, not even Ned Yost can screw it up, yeah. as much as he might try. <laughs> and,
0: and that says volumes that Ned freaking Yost is in the ALCS.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit of both. Yes, he, yeah. he didn't have a good uh, tool set to begin with. Ausmus didn't, you know, uh, but he also did not make as much out of what he had as as he could have done. Yeah, yeah.
0: well, Yes. As we kind of wind our way down on this podcast and our kind of our post-mortem of the season, uh the teams in the ALCS looks like uh Kansas City Royals, who the Tigers beat by a, a single game for the division, and the Baltimore Orioles who beat the Tigers in the ALDS. Uh and obviously the NL, uh the NLCS, again is the Giants and Cardinals. Like, everybody really wanted to see that series again. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, uh, I think, obviously paying a little more attention to the ALCS. So, uh, well, how do you, you know, as you put it in the notes, because uh, you, you did the majority of the show notework this week, you put it as, it's shaping up to be a world series of good guys versus bad guys. So why don't you extrapolate in that a little bit? <laughs>
1: Well, just like you said that, uh, you know, when you take uh, the Wall Street Journal's hateability index or whatever, you know, you look at uh, the way they're lining up the teams that people least want to see, especially Mm -hmm. because of, you know, recent performances, uh, playoff appearances. The Giants and the Cardinals have got to be the most hateable matchup anybody could dream up at this point. Uh, Personally, I would have much rather seen the Dodgers uh, going to the championship series, going to the World Series. Yeah. Uh, on the American League side, obviously, then you have two teams that have not been to the World Series since what eighty three and eighty five, respectively. Yeah, you know, the
0: two of the teams that have t- two of the longest pennant droughts in uh, ongoing pennant droughts. Uh, the, uh, I think they're up. Other than I think the Cubs, those are the two longest.
1: Right. You know, and so you now you've got two guys in the in the uh, championship series that you kind of want to see succeed if only for the underdog, you know, yeah. story part of it. Whereas, you know, I think people are getting tired of the Cardinals and certainly, you know, the giants. And it's like, okay, um, pick any one of those two ALCS teams and you're, you know, you're in better stead than if you pick one of the NLCS teams. So, you know, I, at this point, all of my favorites are out of the playoffs, so Mm -hmm. I I wanted to see Oakland get further. I wanted to see the Tigers obviously get further. I wanted to see the Dodgers get further. They're all out of the playoffs. At this point, I'm considering becoming an NFL fan.
0: (laughs) That says volume. That's huge. right? Yeah, it does. Uh, But, you know, I I got it in a way I was jealous of Royals fans because they really – what they're going through right now feels like how we were in 2006
1: it does you know, you know there's ups and downs to that too i mean yeah. it's absolutely a thrilling ride with great moments of you know high ecstasy and you know getting drunk on champagne at the same time you got to believe that it's been just an emotional roller coaster for them so many tense moments i'm sure the fan base is ready to vomit yeah. you know but that's you know that's the price of admission i guess for a season yeah. like that yeah. So in
0: that way, you know, uh, it, it, I actually I don't have a horse in a race anymore, as you put it, or a real rooting interest. But at least with the. Uh, the two fan bases involved in the AL, uh, I'm happy for both of them because you know it's been ages for both these teams
1: to get this far. So, no, I just hope really, I
0: just hope it's a really entertaining ALCS, right? And it, and, and it should be. It really should be.
1: Comes right down to it in the ALCS, root for either team. You know, yeah. you've got a good pick in the NLCS. Root for a freaking meteorite.
0: That's uh, you pretty much nailed <laughs> it.
1: to blow them both out. <laughs> yeah,
0: because yeah, no one wanted uh, what we've seen in the NLCS. No. All right. Uh, before we wrap up this podcast, folks, I guess we should kind of have a state of the podcast because we're at the end of the season. There won't be a lot of news, and obviously there's a lot of transition going on at Bless You Boys. As uh, Kurt has left the site. Uh, a few other people are either leaving or thinking about leaving. So uh, I think we should say right now with this podcast, we're probably going to go on hiatus for a while just because there's probably not going to be any news to talk about. So I, we really can't say for sure when we'll come back. Uh, or in what state status will come back in
1: right now yeah i mean like, like you said the off season tends to be a little bit drier um, mm-hmm. I, you know i know we'll be back um you know certainly when when big moves start being made and, and uh, rosters start shaping up certainly with the winter meetings yeah you know we'll be back online and doing more of that kind of thing but yeah um you know we've had a good run this year i think with getting mm-hmm. a lot of good guests on so yeah. it's uh, one of those cases where i think we can kind of you know, we'll do a couple of greatest hits, you know, I yeah. think podcasts and maybe repost some of the uh, Mario and Pemba Rod yeah, Allen. Well, yeah,
0: that was one thing we were thinking about doing, maybe doing a, a cut of the three interviews with the TV and radio sure. guys. You know, we could even do something with the, the beat writers guys we did as well. So. Yeah. And, maybe and just to keep the RSS feed alive, so to speak. Right.
1: And, and now that we've kind of established those relationships, um, you know, I do definitely want to, just, you know, for our listening audience's sake, to say we, we do want to get some of those guys back on the show in the off season. Get their yeah. thoughts, kind of keep things fresh for us a little bit. So you know we're not going anywhere, but it, it might yeah. slow down a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, like I said, and there are going to be some upheavals at the site now as Rob has uh, uh, stepped into Kurt's stead as as co managing editor. I'm not sure what what role I'm want to want to take. And bless you boys from here on out. Like I said, hooks I we, I, I, we think we found our niche we'd love doing the podcast that's why our favorite thing to do with the site and we're gonna try and I think try and take the podcast to the next level so uh, if anything just watch watch on the social networks uh, you know Facebook Twitter you know and our own personal uh, Twitter and what it's at hook and big AlBYB as to uh, what we're gonna do with the podcast because uh, like I said as hook said we uh, we're really having a lot of good luck with the interviews. And I think we're getting some good information and we want to continue that. So, uh, but we both do need a break <laughs> more than anything else. We need a break. Cause, uh, as we as we said on this podcast website, this season was a grind. It really, really was.
1: It was more exhausting certainly than even last year. And yeah, uh, I don't know. Just for me personally, uh, you know, uh, the off season. You know, I, I've said before. I'm I'm uh, I believe in two sports seasons. There's baseball season, and then there's yeah. yearning for the baseball season. <laughs> so you know, just just personally during the uh late fall and winter i tend to kind of divorce myself a bit from the sports uh sites mm-hmm. and so forth and do a lot more reading and catching up on the summer blockbuster movies that i didn't get a chance mm-hmm. to see and that kind of thing so
0: yeah and i will immerse myself in football no. i'm a huge football fan i'm sorry yeah but you know I, I i loved the lions and i covered the lions as a blogger for a long time so you are the yin uh, to my yang <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i am if you're looking for the ang- angsty lions fan well, he's right here so <laughs> but you know it's it's been a fun fun year of the podcast and like i said we're not going to disappear we're just going to uh, uh take a little time off and and i think everybody in the site needs to take a little we all need to sit back and kind of like okay season's over let's get i i don't know about you folks i know look how tired we are you the beat writers, I still don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it, and uh, if anything, uh, I I just want to give out so much credit to those guys
1: because we couldn't do what we do if they didn't do what they're what they're doing. No, and that's obviously true of the the broadcasters that we've had on the Yeah, on the same with them as too. well. Exactly. You grind this out for 162 games. You know, and it's yeah. finally over. Jeez, guys, enjoy the the break. You know, yeah. in the off season.
0: Yeah, I guess that's the one advantage. Uh, I you know if there is advantage to a longer off season as we have now, we get the there's going to be a dead period where nothing's going to happen for the most part. I, I I doubt anything's going to happen with the Tigers. So, that's probably why we may take a couple of weeks off and see where things stand from there, you know, or you know, maybe we'll talk about the World Series or if we have an opportunity for a guest, you know, that could change things as well. But for now, I think this is going to put a capper on 2014 and for the most part any podcast you hear from next will probably i will be talking about 2015. So, uh,
1: anything else you'd like to add outside before uh, we call the weekend? Uh, no, nothing really. Uh, just to say it was a, again, it was it was a fun year um in terms of the podcast at least. Yeah. Not the baseball season so much, yeah. but uh you know, I I am really proud of what we've accomplished here and uh, yeah. certainly appreciated our our listening audience's support and the comments that we get and uh yeah. you know, hey guys, we'll we'll be right back at it next year.
0: Yeah, and uh, and also want to give a a, a thank you to Matthew B. Mowry, uh for for uh, taking time out of his uh, busy schedule. Actually, his schedule involved a very sick child who was taking a nap, so luckily we were able to fit him into uh, into the time frame into the podcast. So again, thank you again, Matthew. Uh, and like I said, follow him on Twitter. He's a great Twitter follow. As are most as are the other guys we've talked to. You know. Uh, Chris Ayotte and uh, Jason Beck and uh, Mario Pemba, Rod Allen and uh, Dan Dickerson. So please follow them all right. on
1: Twitter. And let's not forget Ben Chiswick, the Whitecaps. Yeah. So. Yes,
0: right. Yeah. The, the, our first, uh, really. Our he, first kinda, guest. he was our our guinea pig. That's our right. Cast up all this. So. And I'm
1: not sure we'll get him back on the horn. Uh, you know, also to, yeah. to give us kind of an insider's view on the prospects coming up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because that you know that's and those that's your stopping grounds. So. Yes, it is. Yes. All right, let's wrap this up because uh, I'm getting tired. And that's another. Issue. Issue with the podcast is that I'm going, I'm dealing with some health issues again, and uh, so yeah, I'm. It, it, it's it's just one of those things where I uh, my stamina isn't what it needs to be right now. So I'm looking forward to
1: just not doing anything for a while. I've, so, I've heard with that, uh, yeah, cocaine's pretty good for that.
0: Uh, this isn't the 1980s.
1: Okay, okay.
0: <laughs> I could tell you about the ni- uh, maybe another podcast. Tell you about what it was like in the 1980s and that kind of thing? Because uh, I've been there, and been around the block. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I try to live my life like. Uh, uh, like Roadhouse, just... my life was Roadhouse. <laughs> just watch Roadhouse; that was my life. No. <laughs> all right, let's wrap this up before I say anything more. Oh boy! So, all right. So, um, Hookslide, where can they find you? Find you online?
1: Uh you find me on Twitter at HookslideBYV and you can get me at Gmail, HookslideBYV at gmail uh, at gmail.com.
0: Uh, You can find me at Roadhouse. No, not at Road. It's at Byb, Basically. Big Al Byb, uh, on Twitter. And um, with that, let's wrap it up. So. Uh, I usually say until this time next week, but I'll just say until the next time. This is Al Beaton saying good afternoon and good luck along the foot slide.
1: Really, don't do drugs, kids.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm going to go see what kind of pharmaceuticals I have in my cabinet before the next Lushy Boys podcast.
1: (laughs) That'll get him out of the old ballpark. That's good advice. Thanks, big fella.